welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliotti, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 17, The Love of God. The discussion today is on the love of God, and I've concluded that one of the most important ways we can prepare for the coming of the Lord and all the times and troubles that, that preceded is through preparing ourselves spiritually. Otherwise, all our other preparations would just be a sham, wouldn't be much good to us. We would rely upon those things and not rely upon the, the coming of the Lord. So, I'd like to establish that as kind of a basis for this eight-week series and kind of get centered on Christ and upon our Heavenly Father and see if we can improve our, our love um, of God and of one another. I've relied on Visions of Glory a lot, this book, the story of Spencer's visions, and this paragraph here is probably one of the most incredible pieces I've seen in, in this presentation tonight. He says, to really know that he lives, that's speaking of Christ, that he is perfect, a perfect benevolent friend who loves me enough to leave the heavens, come to earth, and take time to embrace me, which he did, to have a relationship with me, and with all of us who seek him, this is the sweetest knowledge I've ever known. To know that he knows you far better than you know yourself, yet he loves you better still, is willing to show you, who you are in his sight, and what you're capable of. This is why I love him so, because he first loved me. Now, think about this. A perfect benevolent friend. Can you think of someone who's a perfect benevolent friend in your life who's not Christ, not Jesus? And then multiply that by X amount of perfection until you get Christ Jesus, and that he is your personal friend from the get-go. When he says, I'm the beginning and also the end, that's how he is. What he starts, he sees through to the end. And you are the object of his love and of his labors in coming to this earth. From Isaiah 63, verse 7 through 9, we read, I will recount in praise of Jehovah, Jehovah's loving favors. Now, of course, the King James says the Lord, but the Hebrew says Jehovah. And it's just a way of not using the word Jehovah all the time, but in the old days they did, so I, I feel it's okay to do that. Jehovah's loving favors, according to all that Jehovah has done for us, according to the great kindness he has mercifully and most graciously rendered the house of Israel. Now, think of Jehovah in the Old Testament as Jesus Christ, as very evident from the Book of Mormon, for example, but also I found a literary proof of that in Isaiah 53, where the suffering person who's mentioned there in verses 1 through 10 is also shown to be the king of Zion. And if you believe that 53 is talking about the suffering Christ and it matches up with his life, then that is, that is the king of Zion or the Lord Jehovah. For he thought, surely they are my people, sons who will not play false. And so he became their savior. With all their troubles, he troubled himself, the angel of his presence delivering them. In his love and compassion, he himself redeemed them. 
he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So here by his example, as an exemplar, he shows what he means by love, or what God means by love, by redeeming them, delivering them, both spiritually in the first, in verse 8, and also temporally in verse 9, by delivering them physically. Let me turn to John, who is the beloved disciple, and for a good reason, because he must have been full of love too. And he, I call him the apostle of love because a number of these quotes from, are from John. He talks a lot about love. He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. We quote that a lot, but think about it in a little deeper sense. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, as he did not with Spencer. Spencer had his problems, but we see that the Lord loved him for who he was, at the level where he was at, without any judgment call at all. But that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, nor comes to the light, lest his deeds may be reproved. But he who does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest as being wrought in God. So not believing is to be condemned, and he gives the word, he gives the, con the definition of the word condemnation in the fact that light has come into the world. Whether you ultimately come to a belief in Christ and then progress further to salvation, exaltation, so forth, it's your response to the light from the get-go. And if you continue in the light and follow the light, then eventually you'll come to, to believe in Christ. That's how it was for me in life. Eventually, if you keep pursuing truth and righteousness and light, you eventually come to a knowledge of Christ, especially in our day. But they love darkness rather than light. And this, this is the main problem, I believe, in our Babylon society here today, right among us. And then his uh, last sentence says that his deeds may be made manifest as being wrought in God. What does that mean? Being wrought in God is that God does it. God accomplishes, Isaiah says, even all that we have done, you have accomplished for us. And he does it through his grace, as we'll come to in a minute. So we do it in him. We do it only through him. And from 1 John 4, a different writing of John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. In other words, it is God's love in us that helps us to love. Love issues from God. He is the source of, of the love, of love. But everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So if you have a spark of love in you, then you know that it's from a divine source. And you're beginning to know God to the degree that you have that love in you. He who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. And that's an interesting definition of God, isn't it? It reminds me of Jesus saying, I am the law, and John saying, in the beginning was the Word, which is Christ. I am the truth and the light and the life of the world. But he's also love. It's one of his perfections, and so he begins to personify it, or he personifies it. And as we grow in love, we too begin to personify God's love. In this, the love of God was manifest toward us, in that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Now there's no other way, because he is the life and light of the world. Herein is love, not that we love God, but 
that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. In other words, to make atonement for our sins. To take our sins upon himself. That is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, ought we not to love one another also? No man has seen God at any time, not in his glory. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. So love is something to be perfected. It doesn't just happen one day we're in love and we love someone or we love a cute little dog. That's one kind of love. Or we love our spouse and that's one kind of love. Uh, we love an enemy and that is a harder kind of love. So love goes through different phases and growth cycles until it is perfected in us through him. Hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So that's where the love issues from, in other words. And we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And that was an act of love on the part of both of them, both the Father and the Son. Continuing, whoever will confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he is in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has toward us. God is love. And he who dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. You know what it's like to be in love when you marry your spouse, right? And liken it to that. When love is perfected, it reaches that ultimate degree where you're just in love with God. And you can't stop yourself. It just bubbles out of you. I sometimes just, at night, before going to sleep, I just lie staring into heaven just totally in love with my father and mother in heaven. And it is an amazing feeling to be, to know that you are so loved and to know them and to return their love. And he says, herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Well, you know, that's our day of judgment that comes when we um, meet our maker, so to speak. That as he is, so are we in this world. Why does it give us boldness? Because we know that we're there. We, we have perfected our love and there's no more fear in us. So, so we can stand up boldly before God. But he's done it all. He has, got, he has gotten us there where he wants us. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. And how often do you find yourself fearing this or fearing that little thing, big thing, throughout the day? And it's, um, we, we live in fear so much, but when you catch yourself in the fear, do something about it and, and just increase your love toward God in that moment and tell Him you're trusting in Him or you believe in Him that He will take care of whatever it is that's causing you fear or anger or any other emo emotion that's negative. Because fear has torment. Well, why? Yes, because if you're not in love, then it's something less, and maybe you, you know, your fear will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. He who fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man says, I love you, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. Oh, don't talk like that. That's not politically correct. Well, yeah, it is. Let's call it what it is. If he says that, and the scriptures say he's a liar, then he's a liar. For he who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? 
And this command we have from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. The two go hand in hand. If the one's not there, the other's not either. Romans 5.5 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. And from the Tree of Life imagery, in 1 Nephi 11, Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? And I answered him, saying, Yea, it is the love of God which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men. That's why Spencer and others say, and John, he's first loved us. And he, Jesus himself says, I have first loved you. And from that love, to that love we respond. Wherefore, it is the most desirable above all things. And he spake unto me, saying, Yea, and the most joyous to the soul. So if you're not in that state of love yet, where it's, you're full of joy, then you still have some repenting to do, I guess. Myself included. Because then your love has not yet been perfected. And there's more, way, more, way more to be said about the Tree of Life imagery, but that would have to wait for another lecture. There's so much more going on in that Tree of Life imagery that has relevance to, to us and to today before the coming of the Lord, when the Tree of Life actually will be planted in the New Jerusalem. God's grace manifests His love. It's a manifestation of God's love. And how does it come? From visions of glory. I've come to realize that the fall had a profound effect upon us. The fall separated us from the presence of God so thoroughly that we no longer hear the word of the Lord as if we could, as if we could if we schooled ourselves by obedience to Him. Our hearts and minds are clouded, impaired, handicapped by the fall. We are spiritual special needs people quite literally disabled in every possible way. We are, in God's view, a mortal child who was born blind, mentally impaired, and paralyzed. How about that? So, we ought to recognize that fact and not assume that we're not. Because if we assume we're not, we'll never get it, right? We'll never get where we're going to go. And then we'll say, well, that's just us, and that's how I am, and that's God how God made me. Uh, no, he did not. When he created you, were a perfect, you were a perfect spirit. And when you were born into your body, you inherited a bunch of lies from the culture you live in, and darkness, and your visual perceptions were clouded over, and you were subject to the natural man, who's an enemy to God, and you had to unlearn all those ways. And you had to start aligning your physical with your spiritual. And until we do that, until the two are one, we're not yet there. We're still special needs people. This is the glorious, undescribed power, indescribable power of our Lord and Savior that He offers us a means to bring us back out of this mortal darkness. In other words, it's all by God's design that we're here into this darkness and back into His presence. And we agreed to it before we came here because everything works on free agency in God's plan. Where all of these divinely engineered flaws, there you go, are wiped away and we become far more than what we were before. He wants us to have all that we had before and much more. And he gave, us his, he gave his life to not only provide the path to these glorious things, but also to bestow upon us the empowerment of his grace. So we begin to align our physical and our emotions and our physical things with the spiritual. How? through His grace. That's how we do it, and there's no other way. And it's an expression of His love that He does that. 
according to the degree that we respond to his love, so that we are sanctified by Christ. Then he changes us to be like him, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us and has empowered us to triumph when we obey him. I just think this is the most important thing that we can possibly learn and work at it. As we'll quote Moroni later, plead with him with all the faculty, faculty of your soul that you may have this, this love or this charity. Doctrine and Covenants. We know that all men, men must repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and worship the Father in his name. Because the only way we come to, to the Father is through Christ. We've heard all this before, but let's, let's remind ourselves. And endure in faith on his name to the end, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. And we know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. What is justification? It is being redeemed from the fall to where we have re receive a remission of our sins through the grace of God by which we are saved to that saved state. Not an exalted state, a saved state. Through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. And we know also that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. Sanctification is the next step beyond salvation. We clean up our act, repent not just of our sins and retain the remission of our sins, but we also go on from the basic things to the fullness of the gospel and living it and assimilating all its principles so that we are purified and sanctified before him and make sure our callings and elections, at which point we are in a, in a exalted state. And we can attain that on this earth. To all those who love and serve God with all their mights, minds, and strength. So the second part is going to require all that we have, all our faculties, our whole being. This doesn't come just as, by the way. Question? So when, when your calling and election is made sure you have been entered in an exalted state? Yes, then you're a celestial person. Correct. Second Thessalonians. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, who has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through his grace. So he does not leave us unaided. He loves us enough to give us boosts, so to speak, of spiritual energy. And that is his grace. And there are different kinds of grace. And, but he usually gives us a boost right up front to get us started. So then we taste of it and then we want to retain that, retain in that state of grace. Remain in that state of grace. Ephesians 6.24, grace be unto all who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Now to love Jesus Christ means to love everything that he stands for. He is the truth, so we, we love the truth that he gives us, shares with us. He's the light, so we increase in light. We want to increase in light, more and more light. He's our Savior, so we want to know all about that. How did he save us? Why did we need a Savior? Everything that represents Jesus Christ, is his attributes and his perfections, we want to know about that. And be sincere about searching those things so that we know him better, so we can love him more and have a deeper appreciation for him. First Timothy, 
the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love that is in Jesus Christ. So faith, love, and grace, these things all go together. Helaman 12, may God grant in his great fullness that men may be brought unto repentance and good works, that they might be restored unto grace for grace according to their works. So once he starts sharing his grace with us, then we can increase in grace from grace to grace and from grace for grace through our works. And what works? Well, we'll learn that it's by keeping his commandments and not just some of them, but all of them until we know, <coughs> until we know them all and have assimilated them all. Ether 12. This is um, Moroni speaking. And this is a very telling scripture because it concerns us describing us whom he has seen. I remember that thou hast said that thou hast loved the world even unto the laying down of thy life for the world, that thou might, mightest take it again to prepare a place for the children of men. Well, he said that to the Nephites, as well as to the Jews, or the Jewish disciples. And now I know that this love which thou hast for the children of men is charity. Chesed in Hebrew. Chain and chesed. And it is expression of the love of God, as we learned a minute ago. Wherefore, except men have charity, they cannot inherit that place which thou hast prepared in the mansions of thy father. Wherefore, I know by this thing which thou hast said, that if the Gentiles, that's us, us Ephraimites who have assimilated into Gentiles, and have come out of the Gentiles, so to speak, have not charity because of our weakness, that thou wilt prove them and take away their talent. Yea, even that which they have received, and give unto them who shall have more abundantly. So, the Gentiles don't have charity, we don't have charity, so we better do some soul searching and figure out whether we have charity or not, because if it doesn't just bubble out of us, then, yeah, then we'll see that we don't have charity or that love that he's speaking of, that love of God is not in us. Because of their weakness, what weakness? Well, because they're right in kind of a simple style, and we could just dismiss it and kind of think, oh, I know all about, about that, and not look for the deeper levels of truth that are in there, which they have put in there, that requires searching, not just reading or studying, that he will take away our talent and give it to somebody else. Who would that be? Well, back to the house of Israel, right? When the Gentiles reject the gospel in the end time, it is, the Lord restores it again to the house of Israel, to the Jews, the ten tribes, and Lehi's descendants. And it turns away from us at that time, except for some few who minister it to the house of Israel. And it came to pass that I prayed unto the Lord that he would give unto the Gentiles grace, that they might have charity. So again, that's, that's the process. Grace, love, charity. It came to pass that the Lord said to me, if they have not charity, it matters not to thee. Thou hast been faithful, therefore thy garments shall be made clean. And because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou shalt be made strong, even unto the sitting down in the place which I have prepared in the mansions of my Father. So, along with charity and, and love and grace comes a realization of our weaknesses and our nothingness before God. And then he helps make up the difference, and that is how we grow in love, and grow in grace, and grow in, in, 
in charity and the love of God and perfect ourselves. Can I ask you a question? Um, do you think that the time when the Gentiles reject the gospel, do you think it will be a clear, distinct time, or do you think it will just kind of be a process of what process? Can you repeat the question? Yes, the question is, uh, the apostasy of the Gentiles or the time of the Gentiles when it's over, is this a gradual thing or is there an actual cutoff point, so to speak? It's, yeah, and I would say it's both, yeah. Because when the Lord does a new thing, uh, we can see it in 2 Nephi 28, all through there. Zion prospers, Zion is well, all is well. And people gradually begin to reject truth and, and believe in precepts of men or, or philosophies of men or precepts of men that have no scriptural basis that everybody believes them. And that can't produce results because that's why the olive tree is full of bad fruit at that time. And the Lord has to do something different and graft in the natural branches again. Yeah, we've been through that kind of thing, scenario in, in the past. And, uh, but yes, there is a definite cutoff point as well. So, but, but the cutoff point comes after a bunch of conditioning has conditioned people to say all is well. And that's what 2 Nephi 28 is. If you look at it carefully, there's a, a regression, a deepening of apostasy until finally the Gentiles deny Christ or the people in Zion deny Christ. So let's move on because I'm sure we have, if we have time, we can answer some questions at, at the end. Is that all right? To love God is to obey God. So, John again. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. So with the love of God, our loving God, that is by keeping his commandments, it's, it's a sure thing that he will begin to manifest himself to us. And if you're not getting those manifestations, a lot of them, all kinds, then it's time, you know, you knuckle down and ask yourself, you know, what, what must I do then to, to have these expressions, these greater expressions of God's love in my life? Because here's the promise. Either you believe it or you don't, right? I will love him. And if we don't love God, you mean we're not going to be loved by God anymore? Is that what it says? He who loves me will be loved by my Father. And well, it's kind of the one side of the coin. Does it mean we'll be loved more by the Father or... You know, well, of course, that's what it means. So Judas, the other Judas, Yehuda, says to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Because his, his uh, mission was to the house of Israel, right? Not to the Gentiles. Jesus answered and said to him, if a man loves me, just a man, any man, he will keep my words. That's the same as keeping the commandments and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. How? I mean, is he going to be in the next room or what? No. As he manifests himself to you, the, the veil gets thinner and thinner, or the portal, whatever you like to call it, and you'll know. You'll know when that happens, and you'll have these experiences that, are, that he promises to, to you, and you'll know when he's there. John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And that is, that is Jesus as the exemplar of love. And, and he's the exemplar in the fact that if God has loved us, so we should love our brothers. We ought to reciprocate 
by loving him, but also loving others as he has loved us. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. In other words, it's a state of abiding. So you're in love, and he's there, and you, he abides in you, and you abide in him, and in the Father, together through Christ. And it's, it's a condition that you find yourself in. Even as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And you know it. He knew it when he abides in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. So he has joined us when we love him, the way he expects of us. And through that, our joy might become full too, especially as we spread the love and uh, love others as he loves us. Love, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So, think about it. Laying down your life, are you ready to do that at any time for any, if the Lord requires it of you? As an expression of love to somebody, whoever it may be, a stranger even, or an enemy. I reckon we can decide those things beforehand. I say, okay, if that situation presents itself to me, this is what I'll do. I'm ready to do that. And that'll be an expression of my love. I'll, I'm willing to go that far because Jesus went that far. Henceforth, I won't call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his Lord does, but I've called you friends. Because that's a way we become God's friends, the friends of Christ. And it's a special privilege to be called his friends. And call everybody friends, but those who truly are his servants. For all things that I've heard of my Father, I've made known to you. Likewise, we can do. You haven't chosen me, but I've chosen you and have ordained you that you might go and bring forth fruit that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you these things I command you that you love one another. So these scriptures are just loaded with truth and layers of truth. And think about it. What fruit? Well, read the uh, olive tree allegory and how the fruit in the end, in the, in the millennial age, bears fruit when the house of Israel comes back into the olive tree. Think about some of the highlights in our church era and how wonderful things were done and the sacrifices that were made, especially in the pioneer era, that were good fruit. They brought forth really good fruit. And compare that with Jacob 5 from the, from in the olive tree allegory and its end time scenario to today. John 13, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. Why is it new? Because he came and showed us through, through his presence and through his presence with us how to love. And you know, you, you go among certain people and other religions and you see that there's hardly any love there at all. There's no light in their eyes. Occasionally you might see somebody who has light, but it is not the same when you don't have the gospel. That you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. One another. But this shall all know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. A disciple is one who learns and learns and learns from the master, right? And that's what we should do to learn how to love, to learn from him what love is all about, how he views the world, how he sees the person that we're talking to, 
how we see it through his eyes, that person, how we see the potential in that person, and not just what appears on the surface, maybe. Romans 13, <laughs> owe no man anything. Well, yes, we do. We do own, owe a man something, and that is, but love one another, but love for one another. So we owe every man, woman, love, because God has first loved us, and that should be a natural response. He who loves another has, has fulfilled the law. What law? Well, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy might, might and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. But then there are all these other commandments, right? Not adultery, no killing, no stealing, no false witness, no coveting. If there's any other commandment, like them, it is all summarized in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because that is an expression of your love for God. Love works no ill toward one's neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And Christ came to fulfill the law, and so can we. Matthew 10. He who loves father, there's some catches, right? Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And when you can apply that across the board to anything other than God and neighbor, it can be love of my car, or love of my bank account, or love of my beautiful house, or love of my dog, or love of any materialistic thing, any physical thing that's a substitute for my love of God that distracts me from it. DNC 93. If you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. Oh, so there is a fullness then, not just a partial, partial grace or partial love. So to keep his commandments means all the commandments, not just some of them according to our convenience. So it is going all the way with Christ to keeping all his commandments, and I often remind people that includes searching diligently the words of Isaiah, right? In the Book of Mormon, 35-23, he makes that a commandment. Just a small reminder to people. And be glorified in me that I am in the Father, therefore I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. Because we too can be in the Father through receiving grace for grace, and we found out that that, that, that works by doing works. Through the works that we do, we are increased in grace. So grace for grace because we have received grace, we apply the grace that he gives us in doing good works, and then we receive more grace. Grace for grace. Grace for expressing our gratitude for his grace. Now here we come to this passage in Isaiah to people who are on the lowest rung of the social ladder. And we've, talked, we've quoted this passage before, but it's a theme right now in, in the gospel in our church today, coming down from the brethren, that it includes Sabbath keeping, as it does here. The foreigners who adhere to Jehovah to serve him, the foreigners, aliens, who love the name of Jehovah that they may be his servants, because that is how we become his servants, by serving him and loving him. All who keep the Sabbath without profaning it, which is one of the ways we keep his commandments, holding fast to my covenant and to the terms of the covenant, which are the, which are the law and word of God, they are the terms of the covenant, so holding fast to those things and keeping them to our utmost, these will I bring to my holy mountain 
In other words, to a sanctified place, in other words, to the New Jerusalem ultimately, and gladden in my house of prayer that will be there. Their offerings and sacrifices shall be accepted on my altar. And we read elsewhere in Isaiah that their offerings and sacrifices that are not accepted on to him, but their offerings are because they are with full purpose and the, and the complete sacrificial offering of themselves to God, just in the service of God, in ministering to others, as it says, because the word servants in the book of Isaiah has a special designation of being proxy saviors to others, not just in doing temple work, but in ministering to the house of Israel in Isaiah's end time scenario. So the word servants in Isaiah has a special definition of proxy saviors. And you can read that in my other works, in my books and so forth. Thus is my Lord Jehovah who gathers up the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to those already gathered. So there is a pre-gathering pre that's happened, both of the Jews and Latter-day Saints, and then there is another gathering which is of the house of Israel, and these, on the lowest rung of the society, so to speak, who are looked down upon by everybody else, will go out and through their righteous offerings and sacrifices of themselves in their service to God, will gather the house of Israel. They're the ones who do the gathering in the book of Isaiah. And he makes them kings and queens, spiritual kings and queens, who nurture the house of Israel. As often quoted in the Book of Mormon, which passage is taken from Isaiah 49. Love of God begets trials. From visions of glory, I saw all of the sorrows and trials and struggles I needed to go through to refine that mortal body in order to actually arrive at the state I had just promised I would achieve with my body. Because he saw himself in his spirit and he saw that his spirit was perfect, but not his body. But not his body and his, his quest was to align. He made a promise with his body that he would get his body aligned with his spirit. And not to pummel it into submission, but to ease it into so to, so to speak, to persuade it through God's grace and keeping God's commandments and through the atonement of Christ to bring it into harmony with His Spirit. And that is, is the greatest achievement that we can achieve in this life. But there are sorrows and trials and struggles. You don't have to do it, but if you're going to do it, that's what it's going to take. And loving God with our utmost, with all our minds, all our heart and so forth, as we saw earlier. In all honesty, after seeing all of the trials which he saw in vision that I would go through, I couldn't see how I would ever make it. My ego was washed away because I immediately knew I couldn't do it in any way except by the full and unending grace of Christ. It had to be a miracle of the atonement because I knew my weaknesses too well to think I, or any mortal for that matter, was strong enough to do it. And that's, again, going back to Moroni, that, that those who love God and who he shows them their, their weaknesses and it is through overcoming the weaknesses of the natural man that we through the grace of Christ and his and the atonement through the unending grace of Christ you can always trust in it come in harmony in full harmony and perfect our love of God and of ourselves and of our fellow human beings that's loving ourselves as well John again, the apostle of love, the beloved disciple. We owe John a lot because his gospel is so different and his writings are so different from the others because he was a translated being. The other apostles also wrote, but John, 
John could come and go between the worlds. Marvel not, my brothers, if the world should hate you. And that is one of the trials of love. If we're going to love God and neighbor, we're going to be hated. Get used to it. Reconcile yourself to it, because it always follows. And if it's not following, then there's something wrong. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. And in love, therefore, is life. And in not loving is death. That's the point here. He who loves not a brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And we see plenty of those now in a huge resurgence of the murder cult going on in this world right now. won't mention any names, but you know where it comes from. And you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers or for our brethren. For whoever has this world's goods, it should be goods, and sees his brother in need and shuts off his compassion from him, how does the love of God dwell in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in language, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know we are of the truth we will assure our hearts before him. So here's a test we can apply to ourselves just right off the bat. And, you know, especially in here around, you see some, you know, amazing places where they already have their reward. This huge mansion, million dollar house, and the neighbor goes by in the street and they don't see him. And how can you justify those things? They already have their reward, I reckon. At least that's what God, the Lord said to people who have the reward in the Gospels. Fine, it's their choice, but what does that signify? You know, how can you justify that in a society that loves the Lord and loves neighbor as oneself? Didn't Jesus say, if he takes your, um, your cloak, give him your coat also? I mean, you only had one coat and one cloak in that day, right? To change that. Well, thank you. Still, don't you think we clothe in, in uh, costly apparel these days? Don't you think we, cl we clothe ourselves in costly apparel these days in comparison to, to many poor in this world? Doctrine and Covenants 95. Thus says the Lord unto whom, to you whom I love, and whom I love I also chasten, that their sins may be forgiven. For with the chastisement I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things out of temptation, and I have loved you. Wherefore, you must needs be chastened and stand rebuked before my face." Well, that's hard, isn't it? But don't you think that that is the very best remedy for your weaknesses and coming out of your weaknesses so that it'll spur you to, to repent of them and perfect your love of God and neighbor? Chastening, rebuking. Here again, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges. Every son whom he receives if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. Well, what son is he whom the father doesn't chasten? You know, the son and servant, um, it's in the book my Isaiah decoded. It explains what those terms mean in the covenantal sense, how you grow from servant to sonship, and Paul also speaks about it. As you grow into perfection and closer to the image and likeness of God, it is through service of your neighbor and, and uh, giving of yourself in the cause of Christ. That is how you become sons of God. 
Now we're sons and daughters of Christ, but there's a higher goal we're reaching for, and there's a process. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. <clears throat> Romans 8, all things work together for good to those who love God. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword? Now remember, all these things will, or can, and may, or will come upon us, especially as we approach the coming of the Lord and are going to go through some very rough times. Because God is no respecter of persons. He's not going to let us through the pearly gates or through the gates of the New Jerusalem uh, without and go to the same degree of exaltation as someone who hasn't gone through this. It does not work that way. The law is the same for everybody. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. Killed? Yes, if necessary, for our testimonies. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because the reward or the consequence at the other end is always worth it. And didn't we agree to it before we came here? To go through all these things? Of course. Because it's all based on free agency, God's plan. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, or things to come, neither heights, nor depths, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we are that in love with God, there's nothing that can touch that. It doesn't come close. Brotherly love is of God. Romans 12. Let love be without dissimulation, or pretending, or guile, or anything like that. Abhor what is evil, cleave to what is good. Because good is of God, evil is of the devil. Be kindly disposed to one another with brotherly love, honorably preferring one another or deferring to one another, giving each other deference. So, you know, America is a very competitive society. And sometimes it gets to us and we want to be the first or whatever. But no, let someone else be first. St step back a little and be kind. Prefer them first before yourself. Then we go to Joseph Smith, teaches the prophet Joseph Smith, 316. It is a time-honored adage, adage that love begets love. It generates love. So if you already have love and you love another, that generates more love. And that's how love grows. That's how you get perfected in love. Carry love all the way and have that attitude. Let us pour forth love Show forth our kindness unto all mankind, and the Lord will reward us with everlasting increase. Increase in what? Well, in love, but also an increase in every which, which way. Again from Joseph Smith, teaching of the prophet Joseph Smith, 174. Love is one of the chief characteristics of deity, of God, and ought to be manifested by those who aspire to be the sons of God. In other words, we're not automatically sons of God. We grow into it. A man filled with the love of God is not content to bless his family alone, but ranges throughout the whole world, anxious to bless the whole human race. This has been your feeling and caused you to forgo the pleasures of home that you might be a blessing to others, such as missionaries, or any other service of God that takes you somewhere. Who are candidates for immortality but strangers to truth? Those people whom, to whom you minister, that is. Are candidates for immortality, yes, but strangers to the truth, so they need someone to introduce them to the truth. Then they can decide one way or the other, whether they like the truth or not. 
And for so doing, I pray that heaven's choicest blessing may rest upon you. So let's take a little break and we'll come back in about five minutes. It's the expressions of love that we have one toward another, say at church or something. But it is without prejudice. And it also gives scope to the mind. Okay, so it's kind of a, a love ethic that we have in the Gospel, say, that's peculiar to, to us, but which enables us to conduct ourselves with a greater liberality toward all that are not of our faith than what they exercise toward one another. Okay, so if we have this liberality among ourselves, why not use it toward others? At least to some degree, because we can love them with the love that we have toward one another, we can love them. These principles approximate nearer to the mind of God because it is like God or God-like. Because God also loves us in degrees, right? He loves us more when we keep His commandments, right? And then He increases His love in us. We read that in the earlier scriptures today. So we can do the same. And we can generate love in others through our love for them. And 76 is a duty which every saint ought to render to his brethren freely, to always love them and ever succor them. So it's a state, right? It's a state of mind and heart to be always loving toward all. To be justified before God, we must love one another. We must overcome evil, because evil tends to destroy our love. We must visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction. We must keep ourselves unspotted from the world, for such virtues flow from the great fountain of pure religion, that is, God-revealed religion, strengthening our faith by adding every good quality that adorns the children of the blessed Jesus. We can pray in the season of prayer, we can love our neighbor as ourselves, and be faithful in tribulation, knowing that the reward of such is greater in the kingdom of heaven. What a consolation, what a joy. Let me live the life of the righteous and let me, my reward be like his. So that's why the, the scripture says it all works toward good. It's all good. Even the hard things that assail us, those are all good. It depends on our love of God. If we can accept him in love and even rejoice in those things, then we can increase in the love of God and become more loving and more like Him. Isaiah 18, this is King Benjamin. He commanded them that there should be no contention one with another, but that they should look forward with one eye, having one faith and one baptism, having their hearts knit together in unity and in love toward one another, toward another. Now, not everybody wants to have our love, right? Some will just shut the door in our face. I mean, allegorically. And, and that's okay, that's their choice. But really we ought to seek this oneness in our, in our social circles, in our church especially, so that we can start expressing that love that, that God gives us, that we feel toward each other, and spread it around. And these circles of love can grow into bigger circles, till eventually all the circles meet and then we have Zion. And this is the, uh, the greeting that was given 
in the school of the prophets in Joseph Smith's time, a brother, I think, that was only brothers at that time, were received into the school of the prophets, saying, Art thou a brother or brethren? And this was with hands raised to heaven, as I recall. I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, in which covenant I receive you to fellowship, in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable, to be your friend and brother, through the grace of God, in the bonds of love, to walk in all the commandments of God, blameless, in thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen. Now think about it. Isn't that the ideal that we should be striving for? And not just say, well, that was then, or this is just for the brethren, or something. No. It is where the Lord wants all of us to be, in that united bond, these united bonds of love. And what does it do for you when you make a covenant like that, or do a greeting like that, I salute you, I welcome you to this everlasting covenant, to be your friend, brother, in the bonds of love, blameless, to walk blameless before God. It puts you in a space where you want to live up to that and where everybody in that circle wants to live up to that. Because if they're not blameless, in some instance, and they transgress, that's going to affect everybody in that circle. It's the same as in your families. If you transgress in your family, that's what you know, will affect all your family, your entire family, not just you. What goes around comes around. There's repercussions. But on the contrary, then, the works of righteousness that we do blesses all those in that circle. And I reckon that this is what we should be striving for. To introduce and establish in our society, with each other. I mean, we don't have to make these formal things at this point, these formal greetings and so forth, but it ought to be in our hearts and in our minds, at least, at the very least. And these understandings come, they grow in you. I mean, when you have really wonderful friends who, who understand things the way you do and, and, and are anxious to learn more and to grow into deeper relationships and become greater friends to each other and so forth, that all you know, brings you to this point, I reckon. And you would not want to do anything that might harm them or affect them negatively. It's like the um, it's like the Native American hoop when when the hoop broke, they lost their power. They say, "What was that hoop? It was a brotherhood among the tribes." And I've seen little circles form of brotherhoods, and those little circles have been meeting up with other little circles and forming a bigger circle, and so forth, till eventually we'll see the hoop forming among the Latter-day Saints, and then will come the empowerment that they lost. And we will be empowered through that wonderful grace of God to a higher level than we are currently, because we build one mind and one heart, all of us. And you might say, well, that's just going to be too hard to achieve. Yes, it'll be too hard to achieve across the board, but not among those few, not among God's elect, if we strive to be God's elect, Attaining perfection through love. Visions of glory. Another really significant thing I learned was that we are never alone. 
angels are always present, both good and evil. And we might think, well, yeah, um, we think of the good, but evil too. I mean, how many people today believe in devils or speak of devils? Oh no, we can't talk about that. That's, you know, well, why not? I mean, they're there, they're a reality with us. Let's be mindful of them as well so we can know how to act toward them when they're presence. They're always going to be at our throats, putting ideas into our heads, thoughts that we think are our own thoughts. No, they're not. They're from them. I also realized that by my behavior, mood, or thoughts, I was in control of who, who was with me in the room of these angels or devils. I used to feel negative feelings or emotions and feel overpowered by them. I was startled to realize that I was dealing with dark spirits who overwhelmed me when I gave them permission by my emotions, by fear, by anger, by mistrust, by lack of belief, by distractions, by seeking my own pleasures. I realized I was in control and I worked hard to remain positive and loving. It is hard, it is dang hard to always remain positive and loving, isn't it? But we have to get there. To invite divine beings into my life who uplifted me and those around me. And how do we invite them? By asking them. Well, isn't that the Holy Spirit? Yes. But DNC 76, 86 through 88, tells us how the Holy Spirit is ministered from the celestial through the terrestrial to the telestial by the angels who are, are appointed for that. So it's the angels who minister the Holy Spirit to us. So he's right on. But we don't talk about those things usually. We don't think of those terms usually. But he saw it. He was living with it. It is a tenet of my faith now that for good or evil, we are never alone. We're always with others. In my experience, we have a guardian angel. We also have additional angels to help us perform different tasks according to the tasks that we have to perform that, are from, that is from God. And when we do good and seek to say minister in our callings in church, for example, there's more than one spirit, I believe. There are even spirits that help animals in their hour of need. There are extra angels that come when a woman gives birth to a child. I've experienced them. I've seen them. Messiah 3.19 The natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of man, Adam, it's the same word in Hebrew, and will be forever and ever, unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord, and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child does submit to his father. To inflict, yes, because we saw that he's going to chasten us, right? He's going to chasten us until that natural man is no more in us. And Spencer actually sees that he gets to that point eventually, where it doesn't affect him anymore. So we put him off. And when we do that and finally accomplish that, then we're sanctified. Then we can say we're a saint. Like the saints of, of, of the Lamb of God in the Book of Mormon. They're not saints, except they're by definition, they are sanctified ones, after the great division that's going to happen in the end time, among those in Zion. Look up the word saint. It always means one who is sanctified not just saint in name, 
could be an aspiring saint, like we are in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're not all saints. Some of us are ain'ts, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of, full of love, because this is the process through which we are sanctified. And how are we sanctified? By these rebukes, and by these chastenings, and by these, all the other things that, that the, the words that we used. So this is all a good thing. I'm so thankful for it. Because we're so prideful, we're so full of ourselves, and we're so full of assumptions and ingratitude. But let us be in touch with God all the time and ask for these things. Ask for this good. Ask for him, for him to inflict things upon us so we get it right eventually. Until we have perfect love, we are liable to fall. There you go. And when we have a testimony that our names are sealed in the Lamb's Book of Life, we have perfect love, and then it is impossible for false Christ to deceive us. Because right up to that point, you can be deceived. As it says in DNC 76, of celestial people who love and believe a lie, people actually love a lie, yes, and of terrestrial persons, it says, they're deceived by the craftiness of men, but of the elect, Jesus says, if it were possible, the elect would be deceived. So again, by that definition, the elect can't be deceived or they would not be the elect. So then their names are sealed in the Lamb's Book of Life. DNC 76. When, until we've, when we have perfected our love, until then, we're pretty shaky still. So find out how to perfect your love. Charity or love is the pure love of Christ. It endureth forever. Because this is the greatest thing you can carry with you in the next life. I'm not sure you carry much else with you, right? If you die now, what is it that you have that God is going to judge you by? It's the measure of your love, the degree of, of how much you love. That's it. That is the thing that lasts forever, endures forever. It is your love. All the worldly trappings, you're not going to take those with you. Your spirit will be the same as it was before. But it's the increase that you've gained of love on this earth that you take with you. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day shall be well with him or her. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of your heart that ye may be full, filled with this love which he hath bestowed upon all those who are the true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ. Why doesn't he just say upon those who are the followers of Jesus Christ? Because there's a whole bunch out there that are not true followers, but false followers or partial followers. That ye may become the sons of God, because until we're there, until we do that, we're not yet the sons and daughters of God. We're the sons and daughters of Christ because we accept the gospel. Remember the differentiation between the terrestrial and terrestrial celestial kingdoms, how the, the three Nephites, those on a translated level, who were called the beloved disciples like John, inherited the Father's kingdom. They were the sons of God, the Father, the Most High God. For when he shall appear, we shall be like him, because our love will have been perfected in him and through him. For we shall, we shall see him as he is, that we may have hope, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified even as he is pure. Amen. This is, you know, this is some of Moroni's last writing, because he sees that the Gentiles don't have charity. He's still reaching out toward us, 
Come unto Christ, be perfected in Him. How? <laughs> through loving more, through increasing our love, increasing in His grace, from grace to grace, from grace and grace for grace. And deny yourselves of all ungodliness. As we read a moment ago in DNC 88 133, if you shall deny yourself of all ungodliness, in other words, if you have no ungodliness, then you have only godliness, right? Only godliness about you and in you. And love God with all your might, mind, and strength, because that's what it takes to get sanctified beyond just having been saved or beyond just having a remission of your sins, overcoming all of your dysfun dysfunctional patterns, <clears throat> expiating all of your iniquities until they are no more. Then is His grace sufficient for you that by His grace you may be perfect in Christ, or may be perfected in Christ. And if by the grace of God you are perfect in Christ, you can in no wise deny the power of God, who is will be in you and all through you. And again, if ye by the grace of God are perfect in Christ, you cannot deny His power, and, cannot, and do not deny His power, then are you sanctified in Christ by the grace of God, with all by His grace. That's why we praise God so spontaneously in heaven. When we finally reach that point, we're just so full of praise. We'd be praising Him for all eternity and still be happy about that. And through our exalted state, we do praise Him just by being then who we are. Then are you sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ? Remember, that's where it all hails from. Which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of your sins that you become holy without spot. Well, sins and also iniquities because it's not enough to be... There is a difference between sin and iniquity. And if you're living in iniquity beyond your, your forgiveness of sins, you are still in a state of sin, so to speak, because you still have stuff to overcome. So being holy without spot, for example, is like that scripture that says in the Book of Mormon, where we have the power of God, we can do miracles, right? But said no man could do a miracle save he was cleansed every whit of his iniquities. And that's not just forgiveness of sins. So a, a saint by definition is really a celestial person, a sanctified person on a celestial level. That's a saint. And not until then can you qualify to be called a saint. Not by the scripture's definition. <clears throat> and this is how this process with Spencer you know, he goes through this process. He says, I continue to see differently than before. I could see them, the people to whom he ministered, I could see them to some extent through God's eyes. I could love them more, and the Lord sometimes sent me to help them in ways that would have been impossible otherwise. Miraculous ways, it might seem, if one did not realize that God's hand is always working in our lives. But God's hand can work more in our lives than before, right? The more we get empowered, the more His hand is working in our lives. And that, that is what He was beginning to see. He was beginning to see people as God sees them, therefore He could love them more as God loved them more, and minister to them. My capacity to love was profoundly enhanced, which made meetings and partings even sweeter and more difficult, because of the emotions involved. If anything had the power to make a translated soul sorrow or feel pain, it was this infusion of charity or love because my heart wanted everyone to be blessed, uplifted, and their needs supplied. Of course, when we love people, that's what we want also. 
Well, that's why it's such a heartbreak when we see children depart from our love. This wasn't always possible. The people I loved sometimes chose to transgress, and this caused deep sorrow at times. Well, it wasn't just for their own children that they had that sorrow. Now their love ex expanded and, and covered the entire spectrum of God's children. So they loved them just as well as their own children. And I would say all the gods are one. They love each other's children just as much as their own children. Was they're all one. And this is Jesus speaking in his final address to his apostles in John 17, which kind of sums up, it's like the icing on the cake of all his ministry. And it's a deep, heartfelt prayer to the Father on behalf of his disciples and also on behalf of those to whom they would minister. The glory you gave me, I have given them. He gave glory to the, his glory to the Son before he came here. That is why it's such a condescension for the Son and of the Father for Christ to come down here and minister to us in this low-level place, in this virtual reality. The glory you gave me, I have given them. That the, through giving them the truth of God, through giving them the fullness of the gospel, and through teaching them and schooling them and leading them on, they were not yet perfect, but he, he gave it to them as an inheritance because he knew where they would take it. That they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Because it's only through that oneness, through becoming one with God on that high level of perfect love, that we are perfect in one. That the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I will that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Because he was appointed before the foundation of the world to be our savior, right? But so were they, they had premortal callings that they are now in the process of receiving and, and, li and living, living out. O righteous Father, the world has not known you but I have known you, and these have known that I have sent, that you have sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now think about it. If God is in you, both the Father and the Son, and you cannot be in the Father except through the Son, and you are totally in the Son and the Father, then you're one. Then you are a God because you're one of the gods at that point. You can be called a god, as DNC 132 talks about. Verily they are gods, because they attain this oneness with God. Speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not discounting many others. We saw the long-awaited Savior stand before us. This is finally when, when Spencer is there, when the Lord appears. And speak the words which had only read before, his words welled up within us, and sank deep within our hearts and minds. Because when he speaks and you're there, you can't help but do that. It just penetrates your whole being. And you not only hear the words, but you understand them to the depth in which he's trying to communicate them to you. His words, 
welled up within us, sank deep into our hearts and minds, yet now we knew with the greatest certainty that all he had ever spoken about these days and times, all he had told his prophets for millennia, had now come to pass, would all be fulfilled in our lifetimes before our very eyes. Now, isn't that a wonderful premonition to have and come back to earth and tell about it, or come out of death to tell about it, as Spencer did, because it gives us hope too, doesn't it? To read these things where one person's experience can build our testimonies that these things are so, and this is how it's going to work when it does happen to us. He was our only reality. We saw him, we heard him, we saw the visions and shed the tears. What visions? Well, when he speaks, you also see the vision of what he's talking about. Anybody who's gone through the veil knows that. They see through the portal what the angel or Christ is telling them. They see it all happening before their eyes in an instant. And shed the tears because it's so overwhelming, of course. We knew. We were united, knit together in the deepest bonds of his love to never again be separated from him because this, this unity now was with him and all of us attained it, all of us would attain it through him. That's what he sees. Fourth Nephi, it came to pass, this is after the, the coming of Christ to the Nephites, it came to pass that there was no contention in the land. And imagine this is a type of the Latter-day Zion, the end time Zion in the millennial age, because of the love of God which dwe did dwell in the hearts of the people and there were no endings, no strife, no tumults, no whoredoms, no lying, no murders, no any manner of lasciviousness. In other words, these people were pure to, to the umpteenth degree and sanctified, and surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. And there you have it. 2 Nephi 1.15, summing up, The Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. That is what those say spontaneously in praise of the Lord who attained this point, we get to this point, I have beheld his glory, I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. Nephi. And he knew it. And as Paul says, you cannot be saved in ignorance, so you can't be exalted in ignorance either. He was exalted and he knew it. And he had labored a good labor and finished the course, like Paul says. And that's it. Now, if there are any questions, we can maybe answer a few. Yes? We were talking about chast chastisements that take place that bring one to perfection. The thing that strikes me the most in, in these Latter-day scriptures relative to the Book of Mormon is that Moroni carried those plates for 34 years by himself. What, what an affliction is that? And yet, where is the gratitude as Latter-day Saints for what we have in the Book of Mormon that speaks of Isaiah. Most of the time we don't think about what Moroni went through to bring that to us. And my question to you is, presenting this material, how do you see that? I mean, we can feel it in Moroni's words, but the exercise that he went through protect those plates that we can have them today. We should be on our faces continually for a love of that truth that comes through that book. The comment was that we should be on our faces and thankful and express gratitude for the Book of Mormon that 
that both Mormon in writing it and all the dangers that he suffered and Moroni, his son, endured on behalf of us who now have this amazing written work, which we hardly appreciate, I agree. A very few understand the Book of Mormon. It is a many-layered book. There are many uh, Hebrew uh, literary devices in there that one needs to uh, search out and put together. One of, the, one of the easiest things to do is do word searches in the Book of Mormon and see how you get their, the prophet's definitions of those things. And how the Great Marvelous Work, for example, is by definition the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the House of Israel, the Jews, ten tribes, and Lehi's descendants. And, and all the labor that it took, all those years, those scribes that contributed to the Book of Mormon to bring it forth. And it's just loaded, it's just a loaded treasure of God's Word. And we should truly prize it, like you say, and, and God, get on our knees and thank God for it. Because we'll see next time, too, how if we don't, it, this, this book has been given to try us. The Lord said that to, to Mormon and Moroni, both. And if we are not tried by this book and not get what it says and believe what it says and understand what it says and not discount what it says, including the Isaiah passages in it that you mention, which are unfortunately in the King James English, which is difficult, um, then yeah, we'll, we'll, not get, we'll not be in the next scenario, the next part of this scenario. We won't be there. We'll have to go somewhere else because we've been given so much and the Lord expects much of us. Emily. Um, this might seem like a silly question. Um, but I would like you to define what the love of God actually is. <laughs> Emily, maybe you could define that, what the love of God actually is, better than others. I, I would like to hear your, your interpretation of that. Well, Joseph Smith talks about that benevolence, that spirit of benevolence, and wanting only the other's good, right? Mm -hmm. So God only wants our good. He wants, he has a spirit of benevolence toward us. He wants us to enjoy the happiness that he has. And so, he extends his grace to us, which is an infusion of love. An infusion of understanding. And it gets us started in this process of increasing in his love. And then we want to share that with others. That same spirit of benevolence and goodness toward others. Basically that a parent has toward children. That comes natural, but it's also from God, right? So, yes? Going along with what you said, Mom, how do you reconcile um, some of the Old Testament prophets in talking about Jews becoming like bad or evil pigs and condemning them because they've lost their way? The condemnation of Okay, so he, he says he hates Esau and loves Jacob, right? Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Jeremiah. He hates those who transgress or the evildoers. 
Yeah, he does. Well, in one sense, I mean, he loves them enough to give them second chances. He's always willing to do that, so that's an expression of love. But he also puts them through tough love when they trans transgress. And that is to bring them back to his situation of love, of love of God. It's not just to punish them and say goodbye, I don't love you anymore. He still loves them enough to do that, to chasten us, included, to bring us to a higher level of love and truth and understanding, no? Am I getting it wrong? Is, do you want to add more? No, no, I, I'm just struggling with it because... Um, Why? Well, in a lot of ways, like I've pointed out to local people in my church that the saints are not living the higher laws of the church. And, you know, a lot of ways they're following the precepts of men. And when I say things like this, they call me judgmental. And, uh, and I'm like, well, this is just my observation of living among the saints. I still love them. I still want to help them to you know, live the laws and do that. I'm, I'm not trying to put them down, but it's my observation that they're not living the higher laws. Yeah. I don't understand the difference between... So when you make those observations about their lack of this or that, they call you judgmental. Yeah, because, because they don't want to deal with it, I guess. They don't want to be told they're doing wrong. Yeah, they don't want anything to reflect on you. That's why this, Paul says they hate you. Be, expect, you expect this hate. Expect this people, like, like Spencer says, they, he, he, he wants to do good to them, but he, they didn't want his love. They didn't want his ministry. And that caused him deep sorrow, even of a translated being. So. That's part of what you have to deal with, right? So, yes. You mentioned, well, I guess the Book of Mormon mentions, and you had brought it up earlier, that uh, the Gentiles will uh, deny Christ. The Gentiles will deny Christ, 2 Nephi 28. And, um, In the end, yes. The, gen the, the Gentiles, that's us. Yes, that's us. It's written to the Gentile, the church. Yes, by definition, we're the Gentiles, the gospel is restored to the Gentiles, from the Gentiles it goes back to the house of Israel, the Jews, the ten tribes, and Lehi's descendants. So my, my we who are identified with the Gentiles in the Kirtland Temple dedicated prayer. Correct. My, my question in, in saying all that is, how does the Church of Jesus Christ yes. deny Jesus Christ? Is it, is it in the sense of, I just don't believe in Jesus Christ anymore, or they deny who he is? That's a good question. <laughs> How do the Gentiles deny Jesus Christ in the end, right? That's your question. How? By not accepting him as Christ anymore or something else, right? Is that your question? Okay, so, well, you've seen it in apostasies in the church, right? In the time of Joseph Smith. Eventually, they lose their testimony of Jesus. It happened also in our day. It's been happening to people who were once members of the church and who were excommunicated and they went to the media and pleaded their cause and made a spectacle and drama and next thing you know, a few years later, they don't even believe in Jesus anymore. So how, 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 did, how did they get from there to there, right? So, um, so I would say it's a process, but um, they may also claim they are of believe in Jesus Christ. Where do we get a lot of our persecution from? From Christians, right? From fellow Christians who don't believe that we're Christians. And yet they claim they're of Jesus Christ. So what happens to these people, and the, to the Gentiles, which is us, the people in Zion, speaking of in 2 Nephi 28, who actually in the end deny Christ? I reckon that they're denying the truths of Christ and the love of Christ and the different attributes of Christ. 
and persecuting others. When they do that, they lose, it, they lose the light entirely, but they themselves don't recognize their own blindness anymore. Even Satan believes that he's still doing what, what he believes in some strange way is still the best course to follow by making everybody be good, by compelling everybody. Yes? Could you go back to Isaiah 56.8? You explained those levels, but I couldn't get it. It was so fast. Yeah. Was the very lowest? Yes, the foreigners and the eunuchs were the lowest caste of society in that day. And in that chapter 56, Isaiah contrasts them, the lowest level, with the highest level, the prophets, the watchmen. And he condemns the prophets and uh, humiliates them, humbles them, and he exalts the humble ones, the lowest level. And that's his purpose there. No, you apply to now. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. I'm just telling you what Isaiah says and how, he's, how he says it. Yeah. Read chapter 58, all of it. And you can apply it whichever way you like. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you love Christ, you love his truth, and it is truth in scripture. Now, these are his words and his predictions of the end time. So there you go. So apply it whichever way you feel is right and get a testimony of it or witness of it by the Spirit, as I say. But those lowly ones are the ones he exalts and they become his servants. And follow the word servants all the way through Isaiah and see how the Lord you know, identifies them and defines them. And they're the ones that are spoken of in the allegory of Zenos, where those servants, those same servants that the Lord, that the Lord tells the one servant to go and hire or to, get, to help, him, these are all the ones who, who graft in the natural branches of the house of Israel, the olive tree. So those are the same servants. They're also the same servants as in the book of Revelation, the 144,000 servants. The word servants has that particular definition in the end time scenario. And these lowly ones are lifted to a high exalted state and those who are in exalted state are humbled. Yes? Sin versus inequity, yeah. We've covered that before, but basically sin is something you do wrong and you recognize it and you acknowledge it and you're sorry that you did it, there was remorse, you repent of it, and you ask forgiveness. If it's serious, you go to a higher authority like the bishop and through the repentance process, you are forgiven, the Lord forgives you because of his atonement, he atoned for your transgressions. Okay, iniquity is not that. Iniquity is, like it says, the iniquities of the fathers and the heads of the children to the third and fourth generation, Deuteronomy. So those are the effects of transgressions that are passed down to generations. They're dysfunctional patterns that one parent passes on to another. And your job <coughs> is to take ownership of those dysfunctional patterns in your life that you've inherited or that you've contributed to by yourself, by your own misdeeds, and take ownership of them and expiate them or get rid of them. 
by repenting and repenting and repenting. When you catch yourself in a dysfunctional state by fear or anger or some other emotion, that's negative. And over time, through the grace of God and His atonement, you will be able to overcome all those iniquities, all of those dysfunctions. And you'll be able to do miracles, as it says in the Book of Mormon. No man can do a miracle, save he was cleansed every whit of his iniquities. Because then you're in a sanctified state and perfected, perfected in Christ. Okay, shall we? And there is another question. Yes? Did you talk more? You said something about angels that minister the Holy Spirit? Yes, we read the scripture. Okay, I think. Oh, okay, I also gave the reference in Doctrine and Covenant. And right. Did you get that? No, 76. Oh, 76, yes. And 88, 76, 88, yes. 88, 133 was one of the references, but um, that was a scripture that we read, right? Well, I have DNC 76. DNC 76, 86-88 talks about the Holy Spirit of God ministered from the celestial through the terrestrial to the celestial and it says it, referring back to the Holy Spirit, is ministered by the angels who are appointed to minister in the celestial world. So in other words, it is the angels who minister the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost to us. It is not just some ethereal spirit that's floating out there. It is ministered by persons, angels, pre-mortal angels or even those who've gone beyond and serve in the function of angels again. And Spencer sees all of that in his visions. But it's also scriptural. I don't know anything that he says in his book that's not scriptural. To add to that, Albert, on Nephi, in, in 2 Nephi chapter 31 and 32, explains the very same thing that the angels administer the Holy Ghost. 2 Nephi Chapters 31 and 32. Can you repeat that? 2 Nephi chapter. 31 and 32. Chapter, chapters 31 and 32? Yeah. To get the whole context of it all. Uh, okay, yeah. Nephi's last words, basically. Yeah. yeah. It's true. Um, the Holy Ghost, yeah, well, the ministers, yeah, it's true. Angels speak the words of Christ and so forth. Correct. Yes? One of the scriptures you quoted was how they would greet each other without lifting hands. Yes. That is the NC 88 they were, it sounds like they were almost covenanting one with another. They were covenanting one with another, yes. But they would support each other and look out for each other. Yes. In, in the allegory of voluntary, sorry for the long introduction, there's the one servant who comes, then he calls the other servant. Yes. This sort of covenanting one with The one servant, in the, in the allegory of Zenos, calls the other servant. I'm just doing this for the benefit of the people who are listening. Right. Okay? The one are we to wait for that one servant? There's nowhere I'm aware of where we covenant unless I'm missing something. No. Where we make that kind of covenant, and it, in my reading of the scriptures, there appears to be great blessings when you enter some kind of covenant like that. Where yes. You are connected to other people in a way. Yes. Are we to wait for that? One for all, all for one is that covenant. Yes. Okay. And formally, your question is, should we wait for that? Yes, formally, yes. Because that was for, formally the time of Joseph Smith, right? The school of the prophets. So, but many things that happened in that day are a type and shadow of what will happen again. So yes, when that one servant comes and he calls other servants, no doubt 
that would be a good scenario or possible scenario for such a thing to happen. Yes. That's a good observation. Until that happens. Until that day, yes. we can have the spirit of that in our lives, right? And then I guess it's up to you personally if you want to make that covenant with somebody. You know, I would say nothing's preventing you. But I'm not here to teach that you should do that. I'm not suggesting. Okay. I, it just feels like there will be something. Yes, there will be something like that that come, comes along. Yes? So I was wondering, when you talked about there were small, small circles of people gathering with larger circles. Small circles gathering into larger circles, yes. And then going into groups. And I wondered if that's kind of what you were talking about. Yes, that is what I'm talking about. Well, again, on an informal level, right? <coughs> Friends who understand and, yeah with each other and they form a small circle and then a bigger circle and they meet up with other little circles and it's happening now. I see it everywhere. Was there one more question? Emily. It's just a comment. Um, would it be accurate to say I thought about this question that I asked you that you post back to me about what the love of God is. Um, would it be accurate to say that the love of God is doing something for another that they cannot do for themselves according to their agency? I would say that's a great expression of God's love and it is for, to repeat for the benefit of the webcast people it is to uh, do something for someone the love of God right that they cannot do for themselves uh, but they not that they don't want to do it for themselves but they're not able to do it for them like to take care of the poor and needy who have no way of getting out of their poor and needy state they need some grace or some boost from something, from somebody, somewhere, to pull them out of that. So where we see a need, that is where we can express the greatest love because that, that is beautiful. Emily, I, I love what you just said. Thank you. Right, we'll end it there. Thank you very much. See you next week. <clears throat> next week we're going to talk about the faith in Christ or faith in God, which is another really important concept for preparing for the end time because we're going to need it. Thank you. This concludes Lecture 17, The Love of God. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.